0: The next morning, alarms were ringing. The United States Senate called attention to the Civil War that was taking place but 350 miles from the Capitol. The sleepy eye of the national government looked upon West Virginia. A senatorial investigation was immediately ordered to inquire into the blight that was eating out the heart of the coal industry. Once again, the public was given a chance to hear the stifled cry of the miners in their eternal struggle. Mother Jones 1925 Welcome to American Epistles: The Story of Our Country: One Letter at a Time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. I'm continuing a three-part series on the West Virginia Mine Wars, specifically the conflicts that took place between 1912 and 1922. In this series, I'm covering the Paint Creek and Cabin Creek Strikes, the Battle of Matewan, the Battle of Tug, the Miners' March on Logan, and the Battle of Blair Mountain. In Episode 1, I talked about life for West Virginia miners and their families. We left off with miner Fred Mooney getting work at a union mine after being fired from his job at Paint Creek and evicted from company housing. Today, I'll start with a little history of that union. In January 1890, the United Mine Workers of America was formed in Columbus, Ohio. Most of the nation's bituminous coal came from the so-called central competitive field, western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. Bituminous coal is 45 to 86 percent carbon and is used to generate electricity. It's also used in iron and steel production. In 1897, the UMWA had 10,000 members and only 75 in West Virginia. But 150,000 miners answered the UMWA's call for a nationwide strike, which started on July 4th. According to historian J.E. George, quote, The causes which led up to the strike were various, but at the bottom it was due to one the constant reduction in wages through several years, which had brought the miners and their families to the verge of starvation. After ten weeks, the central competitive field operators agreed to an eight hour day, semi monthly pay, and the abolition of company stores, which I talked about last time. The agreement also stipulated that wages would depend on seam thickness and transportation costs and that they would be based on a standard set for comparable coal fields in each of the four states. The companies actually stood to benefit from standardization of wages across the industry. Finally, the central competitive field operators agreed to recognize the union. The operators in those states insisted, however, that UMWA also organized in West Virginia. With non-union labor, companies in the Mountain State had a competitive advantage over the union mines. But West Virginia operators, being further away from the markets, had higher freight costs. They also pleaded higher operating costs and claimed that they could not afford to pay the higher wages that the union had negotiated in other states. The companies hired spies and heavily armed guards to keep labor from organizing. They also succeeded in getting injunctions against union activities. Meanwhile, the isolation of West Virginia mines left the workers completely dependent on their employers. The so-called judicious mixture of racial and ethnic groups that I mentioned last time also ensured that no one group was large enough to effectively organize. West Virginia labor did get a boost after the coal strike in 1902. The UMWA organized a strike in the anthracite coal fields of eastern Pennsylvania. Anthracite coal is 86 to 97 percent carbon and is harder than bituminous coal, burns cleaner, and is considered higher quality. The miners' demands there were shorter work days, higher wages, and recognition of the union. Miners in Scranton walked off the job in May. In West Virginia, union chapters, known as locals, had formed recently and So UMWA President John Mitchell did not invite those members to strike. Nevertheless, they they voted to join the walkout. 16,000 miners shut down more than 400 mines in that state. Seeing an opportunity to win new customers while northern mines were closed, mine operators in the upper Kanawha River Valley signed UMWA contracts, and the strikes there ended quickly. 60% of the mines in this district were considered smaller mines, and these had smaller profit margins than the larger capacity mines. For the most part, these owners lived out of state. The actual operators leased the mines and paid the owners a royalty of about $0.08 per ton. Operators agreed to collection of union dues through the company's office, nine-hour days, a check weighman if the majority of the miners wanted one, a reduction in the price of powder, semi-monthly pay, and the right to trade where they pleased. In the first episode, I talked about powder, the check weighman, and the company store. But by October, management and labor in the anthracite fields still had not resolved their differences. The Washington Monument had no more coal to run its new electric elevator. Businessmen in the Northeast and Midwest bought up the available coal and sold it for four times the normal price. Food prices, apartment rents, and hotel rates all increased. The post office warned that it may need to shut down, and public schools were at risk of closing, too. President Theodore Roosevelt worried that, quote, A coal famine in the winter is an ugly thing, and I fear we shall see terrible suffering and grave disaster, end quote. With midterm elections coming up, he wrote a friend that, quote, of course we have nothing whatever to do with this coal strike and no earthly responsibility for it but at, but the public at large will tend to visit on our heads the responsibility for the shortage though he had no legal authority to intervene roosevelt invited both sides to the white house hoping to convince them to work things out the meeting ended without a settlement but this was a markedly different approach than previous presidents had taken in such disputes In 1834, Andrew Jackson sent federal troops to quell riots among Irish immigrants working on the c Canal. Federal troops were also deployed to put down a series of railroad strikes in 1877 during the administration of, of Rutherford B. Hayes, and Grover Cleveland called up federal troops to break up the Pullman strike in 1894. But the Roosevelt administration did not use force. Roosevelt's Secretary of War Elihu Root and banking titan J.P. Morgan drafted the strike-ending deal. It included a 10% raise instead of the 20% workers had asked for and a nine-hour day instead of the requested eight. The operators claimed victory because they did not agree to recognize the UMWA. Union President Jack Mitchell considered it de facto recognition and claimed victory as well. On October 23rd, the miners agreed to return to work. But in the New River coalfield Field in West Virginia, Justice Collins and other operators held out. Beginning a practice that would continue through the mine wars, Collins hired the Baldwin-Felts Detective Agency of Roanoke, Virginia, to guard the mine and protect strike breakers. After violence that killed eight miners and two Baldwin-Felts agents, Collins and the other operators succeeded in breaking the strike but miners in Kanawha County did manage to organize during and after the strike. And now we fast forward to 1912. Cabin Creek and Paint Creek each empty into the Kanawha River a few miles upriver from Charleston, the capital of West Virginia. In 1912, about 7,500 miners were employed by the 96 mines operating on these creeks. By now, all of the Kanawha mines were UMWA-organized except for Cabin Creek. The wage agreements expired on March 31st. Coal operators there were willing to renew the terms of the previous contract, but but District 17 miners sought a new contract with an eight-hour day, biweekly pay instead of monthly, and unlimited checkoff. Checkoff means that union dues are collected automatically as a payroll deduction. They also wanted the wage increase that the miners in the central competitive field had negotiated at a meeting in Cleveland an additional $0.05 per ton for miners, and an advance of 5.26% for inside day labor. Wages for union miners covered by these agreements would range from $0.57 to $1.27 per ton. Miners in southern West Virginia earned an average of $0.38.5 per long ton, or 2,200 pounds. On April twelfth, the Paint Creek Operators Association rejected the union's demands. The union dropped all of them except for the wage increase, but the operators still refused. Paint Creek miners walked off the job. Some of the strikers headed over the ridge to Cabin Creek to urge the miners there to join them. Frank Keeney and other Cabin Creek miners drafted a list of demands, including an end to compulsory use of the company stores, the removal of the Baldwin Feltz guards, and the right to free speech and peaceable assembly. They did not ask for a pay increase, but wanted a standard ton and formal recognition of the union. The next morning, Keeney and his father-in-law were fired from the Wake Forest Mining Company and evicted from their company housing. They were also told they would never mine on Cabin Creek again. Two weeks later, District 17 officers called an end to the strikes in Paint Creek and the rest of the Kanawha Valley, having settled for a a two-and-a-half-cent increase per long ton. They withdrew all of the other man- demands, but the Paint Creek operators rejected the Union's significantly reduced offer, and the strike was back on. Historian James Green describes the calm before the storm in his book, The Devil is Here in These Hills. On May Day 1912, the men stayed home in towns like Hollygrove, Mucklow, and Burnwell and enjoyed a rare holiday one that had special meaning for the socialists among them. For the next week, the miners passed the spring days sitting outside their cabins, smoking, whittling wood, and talking as the woods along Paint Creek turned endless shades of green and the azalea and dogwood blossoms garnished the valley. A few of the strikers set off to hunt squirrel and possum. Others joined together in string bands to play mountain music and some enjoyed a rare chance to play with their children on the dirt road that ran along Paint Creek. According to Green, the strikers expected that District 17 and the coal operators would soon reach an agreement. But the arrival of Baldwin-Feltz agents at the Mucklow train station signaled to the miners that the operators were preparing for trouble. Quinn Morton, president of the Paint Creek Operators Association, led the agents up to his Morton's Imperial Colliery on May third. The next day, retired Army Sergeant Ernest Gaujo led the guards in military-style drills in front of a Mucklow Company store. Gaugeau had served with the occupying forces in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. The Political Science Quarterly justified the hiring of the guards in its December 1914 issue. Those men who refused to join in the strike were frequently threatened and intimidated, and in some cases assaulted, and veiled hints were thrown out as to the violence that would result if mine guards were imported. In order to guard their property, to protect those who continued at work, and to make possible the operation of mines through imported labor, the operators contracted with the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency for men to act as mine watchmen or guards." As was naturally the case in the employment of men whose occupation was of such a dangerous character, some were secured who were unfit to serve in that capacity. Their bravery cannot be denied, nor can their loyalty and efficiency in serving their employers' interests be questioned. But the fact remains that their presence was the direct cause of much of the violence that followed. A few of the guards had criminal records, and there was occasionally a man who was able to boast that he had, quote, killed a man, end quote. But Baltimore Sun reporter, Harold West, had this to say about the guards. Before the state troops went into the region and took their rifles away from them, the mine guards went about everywhere, gun in hand, searching trains, halting strangers, ejecting undesirables, turning miners out of their houses, and doing whatever rough work the companies felt they needed to have done. Stories of their brutality are told on every hand along the creeks. Some are unquestionably exaggerated, but the truth of many can be proved and has been proved. In spite of the work they do, some of these Baldwin men seem to be decent enough chaps to those who are not undesirable, and they are for the most part intelligent. But they are in the minds for a definite purpose. They understand what that purpose is, and they have no hesitancy about delivering the goods. They seem to have no illusions about their work. It pays well, and if brutality is required, why, brutality goes. Whenever possible, they are clothed with some semblance of the authority of the law, either by being sworn in as railroad detectives, as constables, or deputy sheriffs. But for all that, a number have been indicted for offenses ranging from common assault to murder. In every case, however... The bail has been ready, and it is rare that charges against them have been brought to trial. Some of the assault cases, in which they have been figured, have been of great brutality, yet rarely has any serious trouble resulted for the guards. They go about their work in a purely impersonal way. If a worker becomes too inquisitive, if he shows too much independence or complains too much about his condition, he is beaten up some night as he passes under the cold tipple, but the man who does the beating has no feeling against him personally. It is simply a matter of business to him. He had prefaced his reporting by saying, I went to West Virginia absolutely unprejudiced with the idea of telling the truth about the situation. I found conditions I did not believe could exist in America, and I am no novice in the newspaper game, having seen some pretty raw things in my time. At a meeting of 400 residents, the community decided to ask the mine operators to remove the guards. Czech wayman Brant Scott represented his fellow mine workers with the operators. The former miner had lost his leg in a slate fall and was trusted by both workers and operators. But the mine manager insisted that the guards would stay until the strike ended and miners agreed to work at the old pay scale. Scott responded that the union took no responsibility for maintaining peace. The next day, the Baldwin Feltz guards delivered eviction notices to the miners. They had ten days to be out of the company houses. Maud Fish was eating breakfast when the guards came to her home. "'Give me time to finish my breakfast,' she said. "'You've had time,' they replied, and took her breakfast out to the road where they set it with all her other belongings. When mourners returned home from the funeral of a woman who'd lived in Paint Creek, they found their furniture outside." Naturally, the mine guards had a different view of the evictions. Mr. Knight, did you have anything to do with the evictions on Paint Creek of striking miners out of the houses? Baldwin Felt's Detective W. W. Fopp. Yes, sir, I did. Knight, state fully what you know about that. Fopp. It was possibly the 1st of July before there were any evictions made on Paint Creek, and I had charge of the first evictions, which were made at Mucklow. It was under my personal supervision. The houses had been notified about 30 days before that we were, they were given notice to vacate the houses. This notice, I think, read giving 10 days' notice, but none of them were evicted under 30 days there. The superintendent and myself went together and notified these people and told them we would have to, take, we would have, to have possession of the houses, And if they wanted their property stored anywhere or moved, that we would gladly do it and pay their fare any place in the coal fields. I don't think there was a man who availed himself of this offer. They invariably said, You are moving the stuff. Go ahead and move it. When we asked what they wanted done with it, they usually said that they did not want anything done with it. You are assuming responsibility, which we did and moved the stuff down the county road outside the company's property. He also testified that during the evictions, guards were fired upon from up in the mountains. The UMWA set up a tent colony at Holly Grove for the displaced residents, eventually numbering 35,000. Junyana Seville was not evicted from her home, but her encounter with the mine guards was no less tragic. Mr. Houston, UMWA attorney, were you ever evicted from your home by the company guards? If so, give the circumstances. Were you ever put out of the company's property by the mine guards? Mrs. Seville. No, we left ourselves because we were afraid they would kill us. Mr Houston. Were you ever mistreated by the mine guards? Mrs. Seville. Yes, sir. Mr Houston, what was the mistreatment? Mrs. Seville. On the tenth day of June, I got out of bed to hear some shooting. When I got out of bed, I heard this shooting, and I went to the door to see what was the matter. I saw guards coming down the hill. Those guards were going into the other neighborhood houses there, and they began to pick up the men that they could find in the houses. Then they came into our house, and they opened the door, and they came in and looked under the bed. And then on the bed was my baby, and it was asleep, and I told the guards, "'to let the baby alone, because the baby was on the bed. "'And they struck me, and I fell down. "'And then they kicked me in the stomach "'and hit me with their fists in here, "'and then they knocked me down. "'The first, they said, when they got in, "'they turned up the bed, then, and they wanted to get in, "'and they asked me to give them the keys of the trunk, "'and I refused to do it, "'and then they hit me and threw me down. "'Senator Kenyon, how many were there at the time?' Mrs. Seville, about 20. Senator Kenyon, how many struck you? Mrs. Seville, two. Senator Kenyon, did they knock you down? Mrs. Seville, he hit me with his fists and then he kicked me. Senator Kenyon, did they knock you down? Mrs. Seville, yes, and then they kicked me. "'and took me by the arm and raised me up. "'Senator Kenyon, "'did they kick you after you were down?' "'Mrs. Seville, "'when I wanted to go on to the bed to get the baby.' "'Senator Kenyon, "'did they?' "'to the translator, "'ask her this question correctly. "'Did they kick you after you were down?' "'Mrs. Seville, "'I have explained that one of them grabbed me by the arm, "'you know, "'and I wanted to get the baby, "'and one kicked me in the stomach.' and one knocked me down and hit me with his fist. Senator Kenyon, now when was this? Mrs. Seville, the fifth day of June. Senator Kenyon, 1912, about two miles north of Banner Hollow, Mrs. where this Seville, incident occurred, 1912, was the town of Mucklow, Mr. Houston. There, on what May was 29th, your physical condition? the at mine that guards time. were having breakfast at their clubhouse, Mrs. Seville, when they heard rifle fire outside. I was outside. pregnant for five months. They ran out to investigate, and into gunshots coming from the woods. What was the they result of this assault made the upon you? The fray lasted about 40 minutes, and one guard was wounded. The guards brought in a machine to gun that when sent I received out patrols it, my husband any in Ohio hunting hunting for a job. job, and I sent the a letter, letter to June that I 4, was very sick 20 Italian and that I might die, and I was sick were marching until the 14th nearby of August to support their striking When they took countrymen me to the hospital there. at Hansford, at about 5 a.m., the Baldwin Feltz guards set out to intercept them, but the Italians were expecting the guards. One of the Italians had fired prematurely, and the guards fired back. Shots flew back and forth in the dark for several minutes. When the smoke cleared, Donato Di Pietro lay dead. A few days later, five of the Italians were indicted for attacking the detectives, and Di Pietro had become a martyr. The Royal Consul of Italy demanded an investigation and release of the imprisoned miners. On July nineteenth, miners shot at a train carrying strikebreakers, known as transportation men, up the valley from from Paint Creek Junction. Bullets broke through windows, sending passengers to the floor. In the following week, rumor of an impending attack by the mine guards spread through a tent settlement. Supposedly, the, quote, gun thugs would kill sleeping women and children in the dead of night. The call for help went out to fellow union members in neighboring towns. Scores answered. One band of armed men jumped a coal train and ordered the engineer to drop them off at Holly Grove. On the evening of July 26, one set of armed strikers stationed themselves up in the hills while another guarded the railroad tracks next to the tent cap- camp and watched for the Baldwins. At 7.45, w. w. Fopp and fellow mine guard Robert Stringer rolled into view. They were riding a four-wheeled cart called a velocipede. Fopp testified about what happened next. When we got inside of Holly Grove, About a dozen men, and there seemed to be several boys also, were sitting on each side of the rail. I remember whistling for them to get up. We were both pedaling pretty fast, and it was downgrade, and it never occurred to me once that there would be anything wrong. I never thought about it. When I got within ten or fifteen feet, these men got up and stood on either side of the road close to the track, and as we passed there was something like a half a dozen men drew their rifles on us and hollered, HALT! That was the first indication of trouble. I never saw the rifles until pointed at us. We were running pretty fast, and did not have a brake on the car, and could not stop under any condition under possibly fifty or sixty feet. When we proceeded about ten or fifteen yards, there were two rifle shots, and I heard both bullets pass. I jerked my pistol and whirled sideways, and, with my left hand on the handlebar of the machine, I fired twice, which was about the last thing I remember. I felt one bullet hit me in the breast, but I never felt the one that broke my arm. The next thing I knew, I was starting down the bank. I jumped up and saw Stringer was lying on the track by me, dead. He was shot through the head and not breathing at all. The morning after Fop and Sergeant were shot, the strikers waited in the mountains for their signal, the sound of a mountaineer imitating the call of a bobwhite bird. When they heard it, They rained rifle fire down on the Baldwin-Feltz guards outside their clubhouse. The guards ran for cover and tried to reach the big swivel rifle known as a machine gun, a weapon that could, quote, kill at three miles and fire with extraordinary rapidity, being automatically fed by strings of 100 cartridges, end quote. Striking sharpshooters disabled the machine gun by shooting off the cartridge belt. The, quote, hurricane of bullets, end quote, lasted two hours. According to one reporter, quote, the inhabitants are said to have lapsed into a state of primitive savagery spurred on by the depredations of the private guards, end quote. At least six strikers and four guards died, but reporters, quote, could not compile an accurate list of casualties, end quote. The governor of West Virginia, William Glasscock, was in the hospital recovering from about a bout of rheumatism when he heard about the killings. He ordered the National Guard into the strike zone. The troops were greeted by, quote, grim-visaged men, gaunt and hungry from months of privation, dancing gleefully as the soldiers marched up the narrow valley. The miners hugged each other, wrung each other's hands, and shouted welcome to the militiamen, They hoped the troops' arrival meant the end of the private guard system. The National Guardsmen dug drainage ditches and made other improvements to the fetid camps. Governor Glasscock was so happy with the National Guard's efficiency and progress that he ordered five of the nine militia companies to return to their bases. The commander of the National Guard, Adjutant General Charles D. Elliott, reported to the governor what he saw in the hills. The streets of prosperous Charleston were peopled with well-dressed ladies walking poodle dogs and good Christians attending church. But, he told the governor, "...God does not walk in these hills." The devil is in these hills, and the devil is greed. End quote. At this point, most of the mines from the town of Eskdale down to the Kanawha River had shut down, but collieries in the upper branches of the creek were still operating. The miners became more and more desperate. Frank Keeney's wife Bessie was close to going into labor, and his young daughters were recovering from smallpox the Cabin Creek miner realized that the strike would not succeed unless all miners living and working in the company-controlled towns went on strike. He met with district officials in Charleston and told them the miners were willing to fight for the union, but needed support. The union leaders responded that they could not afford to help the Cabin Creek strikers because the Paint Creek strikers, who had been paying their dues for a long time, also needed the assistance. Quote, If you men are afraid to make the trip with me, I will find someone with nerve to go with me, and I know an old woman who would go up the creek with me." He was talking about labor activist Mother Jones who had checked into a Charleston hotel room. Born Mary Harris in Cork, Ireland in 1837, she was one of the over a million people who fled during the potato famine. Richard Harris and his daughter Mary boarded a ship for Canada in 1847. Mary's mother, Ellen, joined them later. After two years in a convent school, before graduating, Mary Harris moved to Michigan and became a teacher. Just before the Civil War, Harris moved to Memphis, where she met George Jones. The couple would have four children. George Jones was a member and organizer of the National Union of Iron Molders. During an economic downturn, Memphis foundry owners closed their shops and locked out union men. As the family struggled to survive, yellow fever swept through their impoverished community known as pinch gut. One by one, the Jones children suffered chills, aches, nausea, cramps, and finally hemorrhaging before succumbing to the disease. Then it killed George. A 33-year-old widow, Mary moved to Chicago, where she worked as a seamstress until the Great Fire of 1871. Over the next 20 years, Jones joined in the labor protests in Chicago and other cities that roiled the Gilded Age and subsequent progressive era. Employers and politicians denounced her fiery rhetoric. She spoke of Rockefeller's gang of thieves, high-class burglars, Judas Iscariots, vultures, sewer rats, and sanctified cannibals. The wives of the so-called money powers were self-indulgent parasites. Senator Nathan Goff, long-time supporter of the coal industry, called her the grandmother of all agitators. She replied, quote, I hope to live long enough to be the great-grandmother of all agitators, end quote. In 1902, in the midst of the anthracite strike, she addressed a meeting of the UMWA, saying, If this generation surrenders its liberties, then the work of our forefathers, which we will lose by doing this, will not be resurrected for two generations to come. Then perhaps the people will wake up and say to their feudal lords, we protest and they will inaugurate one of those revolutions that sometimes come when the slave feels there is no hope and then proceed to tear society to pieces. The black dress, white lace wearing Jones was not only well known. She was well loved in 1907, Socialist and five-time presidential candidate Eugene Debs wrote, Her pulses burn with true patriotic fervor, and wherever the battle waxes hottest, there she surely will be found upon the firing line. For many weary months at a time, she has lived amid the most desolate regions of West Virginia, organizing the half-starved miners, making her home in their wretched cabins, sharing her meager substance with their families nursing the sick and cheering the disconsolate, a true minister of mercy. Paint Creek miner Fred Mooney called her the white-haired angel of the miners. Mother Jones was then about eighty years of age. Her hair was snow white, but she was yet full of light. With that brand of oratorical fire that is only found in those who originate from Aaron, she could permeate a group of strikers with more fight than any living human being. She fired them with enthusiasm, she burned them with criticism, then cried with them because of their abuses. The miners loved, worshipped, and adored her. And well they might, because there was no t- night too dark, no danger too great for her to face, if in her judgment her boys needed her. She called them her boys, she, she chastised them for their cowardice, she criticised them for their ignorance. She said to them, Get you some books and go to the shade while you are striking. Sit down and read. Educate yourselves for the coming conflicts. Jones's autobiography includes a chapter about her time in West Virginia for the Paint Creek and Cabin Creek strikes. From a platform on the Statehouse steps, I read a document that we had drawn up, requesting the governor to do away with the murderous Baldwin Feltz guards and gunmen. We asked him to reestablish America and American traditions in West Virginia. I called a committee to take the document into the state house and place it reverently on the governor's table. I then spoke to the crowd and in conclusion said, Go home now. Keep away from the saloons. Save your money. You're going to need it. What will we need it for, Mother? Someone shouted. For guns, said I. Go home and read the immortal Washington's words to the colonists. He told those who were struggling for liberty against those who would not heed or hear, to buy guns. They left the meeting peacefully, and bought every gun in the ware in the hardware stores of Charleston. They took down the old hammerlocks from their cabin walls, like the Minutemen of New England. They marched up the creeks to their homes with the grimness of the soldiers of the Revolution. Jones made the State House speech on August fifteenth before a crowd of three to four hundred miners. Signs read, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. That is what the governor of West Virginia is doing. And, no Russia for us, to hell with the guard system. For 90 minutes, Mother Jones excoriated the ruling class and exhorted the miners to fight for their rights. I know of the wrongs of humanity. I know your aching backs. I know your swimming heads. I know your little children suffer. I know your wives when I have gone in and found her dead, and found a babe nursing at her dead breast, and found the little girl eleven years old, taking care of three children. She said, Mother, will you wake up? Baby is hungry and crying. When I laid my hand on Mama, she breathed her last, and the child of eleven had to become a mother to the children. O oh, men, have you any hearts? O oh, men, do you feel? O oh, men, do you see the Judgment Day on the throne above, when you will be asked, Where did you get your gold? You stole it from the, from these wretches. You murdered, you assassinated, you starved, you burned them to death, that you and your wives might have palaces, and that your wives might go to the seashore. Jones also said, This day marks the forward march of the workers in the state of West Virginia. Slavery and oppression will gradually die. The national government will get a record of this meeting. They will see men of intelligence and that they are not out to destroy but to build. And instead of the horrible homes that you have got, we will build on their ruins, homes for you and your children to live in, and we will build them on the ruins of the dog kennels, which they wouldn't keep their mules in. That will bring forth better ideas than the world has had. The day of oppression will be gone. I will be with you whether true or false i will be with you at midnight or when the battle rages when the bullet ceases but i will be in my joy at the close of the speech jones took up a collection so some of the miners could buy a glass of beer as the strike spread from mine to mine the coal companies brought in black and white strikebreakers from Georgia, Alabama, and the Carolinas to replace them. According to Mooney, many of these men were illiterate and had no, no had little knowledge of mining. Quote, they had been told stories that made them believe that money grew on trees around the coal mines and fortunes were there for the picking, End quote. The striking miners deployed various means to keep these imported workers out of the mines. Sometimes they used guns, like they did on July 19th, Fred Mooney, quote, often assisted the men who were assigned to check this influx of human beings, and efforts to talk to them often resulted in a fight, end quote. As a group, they were known as the Dirty Eleven, and the members were known by names such as Bad Eye and Bullethead. Dan Chain, an African-American miner, was known as Few Clothes. Few Clothes tipped the scales at 252. He was unencumbered with little, if any, superfluous flesh. His arms were long, and at the end of each arm hung a fist that resembled one of Armour's picnic hams. It was rumored that few clothes was a member of the U.S. Cavalry, colored, that at one time undertook to shoot Brownsville, Texas, off the map. Anyway, he knew how to use a gun. One evening, Mooney, few clothes, and another striker met a train of 50 strikebreakers from North Carolina. Mooney writes, The fight became general. Blows could be heard on all sides. Remarks were exchanged, such as, You dirty scabs. You will come in here and take our jobs, will you? Take that, you damn redneck, one striker was heard to blurt as he landed a well-directed punch. Several railroad men joined in this melee "'and the fight lasted only a few moments. "'When a strike-breaker would get a real punch, "'he would get up and run for the main-line train and get aboard. "'The fists a few clothes could be seen swinging this way and that. "'He seemed more at home here. Five and six men would be pummeling him at one time, "'and the only apparent effect of their blows "'was an occasional grunt from the big negro. "'When one of his blows landed, a man would go down for the count.' Few Clothes was one of the minors convicted in the military courts during martial martial law, but Governor Glasscock later pardoned him. Violence wasn't always used to dissuade strikebreakers. Union leaders like George Edmonds also spoke to them. Edmonds was African American and a self-educated socialist who wrote for the Union's journal. He kept a busy speaking schedule addressing mass meetings and political rallies. He compared life in a company town overseen by deputy sheriffs and mine guards to slavery and sharecropping. Another example was Rocco Spinelli. He was 5'5 and 140 pounds, with a deep scar across his forehead and two on the back of his head. He emigrated from the Calabria region of Italy in 1905 and married Nellie Bowles, born and raised in Cabin Creek. The couple once persuaded 54 Italian strikebreakers to follow them into Charleston, where the Union gave them shelter in a tent camp on Capitol Street. But violence was never far away. On August thirtieth, mine guard captain Thomas Hines was making his daily rounds in Dry Branch on Lower Cabin Creek. Hines had been in the community since 1904 and was married to a coal miner's daughter. Dry Branch residents respected him for his ability to keep order, and he was also known as a, quote, very pleasant gentleman. That summer day, he was looking for Russell Hodge, a Czech weighman on suspicion of criminal activity. When Hines arrested Hodge, he was showered with bullets from the wooded mountainside. The other guards took him to the hospital, where he died the next day. A constable who went to investigate the sh- shooting was driven away by sniper fire from the hills. In response, more baldwin Phelps detectives were called in. The three-man commission that the governor appointed to investigate the incident described what followed. The members of the commission were Bishop P.J. Donahue of the state's Catholic Diocese, Captain S.L. Walker of the state militia, and F.O. Blue, the state tax commissioner. Mild-eyed men, 75% of them with usually cool Anglo-Saxon blood in their veins, and with instincts leaning to law and order, inherited through the centuries, gradually saw red, and with minds bent on havoc and slaughter, marched from Union districts across the river, like Houston, Canilton, and Boomer, patrolled the woods overhanging the creek bed and the mining plants, finally massing on the ridges at the headwaters, and arranging a march to sweep down Cabin Creek and destroy everything before them to the junction. Meanwhile, the operators hurried in over a hundred guards, heavily armed, purchased several deadly machine guns and many thousands of rounds of ammunition. Several murders were perpetrated, and all who could got away. Men, women, and children fled in terror, and many hid in cellars and caves. If ever there was a case for some strong measure like martial law, the conditions prevailing on Monday, September second, 1912, the eve of the proclamation, presented it. In fact, in the opinion of expert witnesses on the scene, martial law, and martial law alone, was the only measure to meet the desperate situation. We believe, partly on the evidence adduced, and in part from the personal knowledge of two members of the commission who were on the ground, one in active military service, that, but for such proclamation taking effect on Tuesday, September third at daylight, there would have been great destruction of property and loss of life in the strike zone. The enormous quantities of Winchesters, revolvers, and other weapons, up to machine guns captured from both sides, and brought to camp at Paint Creek Junction, also bore mute but eloquent witness of the height to which the passions of the opposing forces had mounted." An estimated 100,000 shots were fired, and 16 people were killed. The night before martial law went into effect, Fred Mooney wrapped up his collection of weapons in a tablecloth. To hide them from the militia, who would go from house to house, the next day confiscating weapons, he climbed out of the rearview window, climbed across two fences, waded the creek, and climbed up the hillside to a ledge of rock that I knew about pushing them under the outcropping as far as they would go, I walled up in front of them with pieces of rock and racked leaves against the rock wall as best I could in the darkness until I thought they were sufficiently hidden from view. The governor sent 1,200 state militiamen into the strike zone. When General Elliot came in on the bull moose special, he ordered the miners and guards to surrender their weapons. The National Guard seized... 1,872 high powered rifles, 556 pistols, six machine guns, 225,000 rounds of ammunition, 480 blackjacks, and numerous daggers, bayonets, and brass knuckles. In mid September, the governor tried to get the UMWA leaders and mine executives to meet. Not wanting to appear to recognize the Union in any way, the executives went to the State House but the warring sides sat in separate rooms while the governor went back and forth. Glasscock proposed that the miners return to work while a settlement was discussed and that the operators permanently cease the use of mine guards. The operators refused. For eight years, there have been peace and quiet on the creek, and the miners have been contented and prosperous. Recently, and in connection with the troubles growing out of the strike on Paint Creek, There has been a determined attempt to organize Cabin Creek. You are familiar with it, the open beginning being the speech of Mother Jones at Eskdale on August 6th, and you know that violence, intimidation, arson, and murder have been the weapons employed to organize Cabin Creek. There has been no demand made for any change in any condition, except from Mr. Cairns, who, as president of District No. 17, UMWA, demanded the recognition of his organization, and from a few individuals who, when interrogated as to why they had stopped work, stated in substance that they had joined the Union and proposed to undertake to unionize our mines and that they intended to keep up the strike and agitation until the mines were unionized and the mine guards discharged. In their view, the root of the conflict in West Virginia was not any legitimate complaint of the miners, but a conspiracy between the UMWA and unionized companies in the Midwest to drive the Mountain State mines out of business. As I mentioned earlier, the Central Competitive Field Companies did want West Virginia mines to be unionized. The Cabin Creek Mine Operators wrote to the Governor that For eight years, there have been peace and quiet on the creek, and the miners have been contented and prosperous. Recently and in connection with the troubles growing out of the strike on Paint Creek, there has been a determined attempt to organize Cabin Creek. You are familiar with it, the open beginning being the speech of Mother Jones at Eskdale on August 6, and you know that violence, intimidation, arson, and murder have been the weapons employed to organize Cabin Creek. There has been no demand made for any change in any condition, except from Mr. Cairns, who, as president of District No. 17, UMWA, demanded the recognition of his organization, and from a few individuals who, when interrogated as to why they had stopped work, stated in substance that they had joined the union and proposed to undertake to unionize our mines and that they intended to keep up the strike and agitation until the mines were unionized and the mine guards discharged. Though the governor had disarmed the miners and the guards, a war for public opinion continued. The coal companies put forth a theory that the union sought to seize control of the mines, abolish wages, and operate them on a socialistic basis. J. Lewis Baumgartner, 60 people an adviser to the, the tribunal, urged him to arrest all suspected of insurgents and try them the before the military tribunal. The state constitution allowed this only in, quote, the actual existence of a state of war, end quote. He believed that photographs of the seized weapons would convince the public that they were in such a state. Photographs were sent to the newspapers, and the next day, guardsmen began making warrantless arrests. The charges ranged from trespassing to carrying concealed firearms to even adultery. The prisoners were taken to the town of Pratt and confined in a barbed wire enclosure known as the bullpen. even though the civil courts were still operating. Most of the convictions resulted in short terms, but three defendants were sent to the state penitentiary for up to two years. Of the people who faced trial, 15 were mine guards. On October 15th, the militia was deactivated, peace having, apparently, been restored. Many of the militia were hired as watchmen, replacing the Baldwin-Feltz guards. The companies brought in mine workers, Meanwhile, there was an election going on. Former President Theodore Roosevelt had lost his challenge to incumbent President William Howard Taft at the Republican Convention. The progressive Roosevelt ran under his Bull Moose Party. Woodrow Wilson headed the Democratic ticket. Socialist Eugene Eugene Debs was in the race for the White House also. The national mood was such that all four candidates offered solutions to class inequality and corporate abuses. Debs didn't win any electoral votes, but he won 6% of the popular vote, the best showing ever for a socialist candidate in a presidential election. Debs did very well in West Virginia, and socialist candidates there won local races including mayor, constable, marshal, magistrate, and justice of the peace. In West Virginia's gubernatorial race, Glasscock was succeeded by fellow Republican Dr. Henry Drury Hatfield. Hatfield had a record of reform and supported women's suffrage, workmen's compensation, and election finance reform. On the other hand, election abuses by Hatfield and his cousins during the 1910 West Virginia Senate race had prompted a congressional investigation. The new governor was the nephew of the legendary patriarch Anderson Hatfield, Described in the film West Virginia. In the fall of 1878, near Tug Fork of the Big Sandy River, the border between West Virginia and Kentucky, Anderson Hatfield sued his neighbor, Perry Klein, for cutting timber on his land. The settlement awarded Hatfield all of Klein's property, 5,000 acres of virgin forest. Overnight, Hatfield became one of the largest landowners in the Tug Valley, tall and formidable, with gray eyes and a flowing black beard. Hatfield was known for his marksmanship and the bear cubs he kept as pets. It was said that he had fought off a mountain lion as a boy, leading his mother to say he was not afraid of the devil himself. The name Devil Ants stuck. Hatfield married a neighbor's daughter, Lavisa Chafin, on the eve of the Civil War. After the war, they settled on a corner of his father's land near Mate Creek. The couple raised 13 children. Aggressive and ambitious, Hatfield borrowed money from local businessmen to expand his timber business. He hired friends and relatives from both sides of Tug Fork. At the age of 40, Devil Ants Hatfield was the envy of many in the Tug Valley, including Randolph McCoy, a poor, cranky farmer from the Kentucky side of Tug Fork Historian Altina Waller Both these individuals tried to make money by selling the timber on their land. And Randolph McCoy failed at this effort, whereas Devil Ants Hatfield was the most successful timber entrepreneur in the Tug Valley. A lot of the resentment and fear of Devil Lance had to do with that very success. He was admired. Many people would like to emulate him. I think Randall McCoy would have liked to emulate his success. But at the same time, that success was really resented, and they tended to conclude that he had done it in some illegal way, in some immoral way. And this only added to his image as a devil. By the time Dr. Hatfield was elected governor, his uncle had renounced his old ways and become a Baptist preacher. But after the election, strikers resumed their attacks on transportation men. So did the miners' wives, daughters, uh, and sisters. One striker said that the women of Cabin Creek were, quote, as aggressive as the men were as far as the Union was concerned, end quote. Sarah Blizzard of Eskdale, also known as Ma Blizzard, confessed that she and three other women pried up railroad tracks with crowbars to prevent the trains from bringing in replacement workers. With Mother Jones, Ma Blizzard had organized a march up Cabin Creek, the women all carried umbrellas. When stopped by Baldwin Feltz guards, Blizzard and Jones repro- reportedly broke their umbrellas over the men's heads. Sarah Blizzard and her husband Timothy invited evicted strikers to set up tents on their property. On November 15th, the governor declared martial law again. The militia-turned-mine guards returned to uniform. Military tribunals tried about 15 to 20 people, many of whom received long sentences in the penitentiary. Some of the offenses had actually not occurred during the martial law periods, making the trials illegal. The state authorities claimed that they could not obtain indictments or convictions in civil courts for crimes related to the strike. Later, during U.S. Senate hearings, the county prosecuting attorney contradicted this claim. The strike continued through Christmas. Mother Jones delivered shoes, clothing, and presents to the children in camps at Eskdale and Holly Grove. On January 10, 1913, the militia withdrew again. About a month later, striking miners from a tent camp in Holly Grove shot at an ambulance owned by a coal company. They also attacked a store in Mucklow. Before a U- U.S. Senate subcommittee, Sheriff Bonner Hill testified about plans to serve John Doe warrants for the shooting in Holly Grove. Sheriff Hill. Well, to begin with, I got a telephone message along about three or four o'clock that there had been some shooting at Mucklow, and a little later the doctor called me up from the hospital and said a man had been shot at, or that he had been shot at, rather, in taking a patient to the hospital. And I talked with Will Little, a deputy sheriff, sheriff up there, and he told me that things were in bad shape and that these people had been shot at, or at least from the information he could get, and that he was really afraid to venture up there by himself, and that it was necessary for me to come up myself. I went down to talk to the governor and the prosecuting attorney about the matter, and they insisted that I go up there. I missed, or it was too late to catch the number six, the regular passenger train, and I went around toward the Ruffner Hotel, and I think I met Mr. Quinn Morton, and I asked him if he had heard anything of the shooting or of the trouble they had been having on Paint Creek. He said yes, he had. I discussed the shooting with him, and I'm not sure whether he asked me if I would go on up or not, but I think he told me he had been looking for me and wanted to know if I was going up. I think that is the way he put it. I told him I had missed the train, and he suggested this bull moose train. The train had an iron-plated baggage car outfitted with two machine guns, It bore the nickname of Theodore Roosevelt's Progressive Party, to which the men who commissioned the train had ties. Lee Calvin was on the train that night, and testified that, It came down to Charleston for us, and we got on the train, about nine or ten maybe, somewhere around there, and went on up to Paint Creek, and I was leaning out of the window that way, and they commenced streaming fire out of the baggage car, you know, flashes, reports and cracks from the machine gun at a lot of the tents, and the train went along with a stream of fire, which continued coming out of the Gatling gun all along. Bonner and Calvin both testified that mine owner Quinn Morton said something along the lines of, We gave them hell and had a lot of fun. Let's go back and give them another round. But when Senators asked Morton about making this statement, he denied it. His testimony was, Mr. Morton. Just a few moments, or I don't remember how long it was. It was after this train signal we had gotten. There were no lights, and everything was in perfect darkness, both within and without. I heard two shots, and I think it was to the left of the train as we were going up. The first indication of any trouble I heard at all was two shots, which I took to be on the left of the train as we were going up. A second or two after that, there was something crashed through the window on the left-hand side of the train, about two feet in front of me, and came through, and I took it to be and still think it was a bullet which came through the train. That I do not know. Senator James Martin from New Jersey. What was the character of the fracture in the glass? That would prove whether it was a bullet or a brick bat. Mr. Morton. Well, the glass around there, there was some glass that had been broken, but before this thing was over, glass was broken in nearly all the windows, and I could not tell tell that until after we got a light. But immediately after these two shots, the firing opened up. It looked to me like from every place on the face of the earth, and I never heard such a fusillade in my life, and I hope I never will hear another. Senator Kenyon Was that firing against the train or against and from the train? Mr. Morton, both. Senator Kenyon, both started in? Mr. Morton, both started in, yes, sir. Senator Kenyon, was there any firing from the coach you were in? Mr. Morton, yes. Senator Martine, And who carried on the firing from the coach you were in? Mr. Morton. I did, for one, sir. I don't know about the others. Maud Estep described the incident that killed her husband, Francis Francesco, who went by Chesco. Mrs. Estep. We heard the train come shooting, and he hollered for us to go to the cellar. And he went out the front door, him and some boys that were in there. They ran out the front door, and I went through the kitchen way, and I never got any further than that kitchen door. We were all trying to get to the cellar. He was standing right at the corner of the cellar near the kitchen door, where he was standing hollering for me to go and get into the cellar. It was so dark that I could see just the bulk of him. It scared me so, and I had a little one in my arms, that I could not go any farther. His cousin was there on a visit, and after the train commenced shooting, He took hold of me and told me not to fall, and about that time a shot struck him in the leg. Senator Kenyon, struck the cousin in the leg? Mrs. Estep, yes, sir, his cousin. Senator Kenyon, you go into the cellar of your house right off the ground, do you not? Mrs. Estep, yes, sir. Senator Kenyon, the house was elevated a few feet above the ground? Mrs. Estep, yes, sir. There had been a cellar under there, and it was torn down, and they were fixing it up, so if any trouble started, I could go there. Senator Kenyon, was there any shooting in town that night? Mrs. Estep, no, sir, not until the train came. Senator Kenyon, how old was your baby? Mrs. Estep, my baby, when I have now, is two months old. Senator Kenyon, your baby was not born at that time? Mrs. Estep, no, sir. Senator Kenyon. Did you have another child, did you say? Mrs. Estep. Yes, sir. Senator Kenyon. How old was that child? Mrs. Estep. He won't be two years old until the 16th of September. Senator Kenyon. What time was this? Mrs. Estep. Between 10 and 11 o'clock. Senator Kenyon. Had there been any shooting in the little settlement there before the train came along? Mrs. Estep. "'No, sir. The first thing we heard was shots from the train. "'I suppose it started from the train. "'It was away below our house. "'We live up above the first town where the station is.' "'Senator Kenyon, you live where that bridge is?' "'There's a brief exchange about the bridge "'and the time that the shooting started. "'Senator Kenyon, could you hear this train coming?' "'Mrs. Eastep, we heard it after it commenced shooting. "'We had not heard it before.' We had our doors closed. Senator Kenyon, could you see the train? No, sir. I never went out the front way at all. Senator Kenyon, when did you know your husband was shot? Mrs. Estep, I didn't know he was killed until after the train quit quit shooting, and I heard some of them speak to him and call his name, and I never heard him answer. Senator Kenyon, did he get into the cellar? Mrs. Estep, no, sir. "'Senator Kenyon, the body was outside of the house "'and near the entrance to the cellar?' "'Mrs. Eastep, yes, sir, right on the outside of the house, "'pretty near to the back corner of the house.' "'Senator Kenyon, could you tell whether the house was hit by bullets?' "'Mrs. Estep, it seemed to me like it was, "'but I have never been back over there to see. "'I left there that night, in the night, and I have not been back.' "'The violence continued,' Martial law was declared yet again, and conflicting reports were published. The Bluefield Daily Telegraph reported that 10 people had been killed, seven miners and three members of the National Guard. Elsewhere, it was reported that at least 16 died, mostly mine guards. Historian James Green writes that one company clerk, Fred Bobbitt, was killed. At a rally protesting the arrest of 47 strikers, Mother Jones urged resistance but discouraged further violence. Nevertheless, the Charleston Gazette reported that Mother Jones was leading a mob to, the, to assassinate the governor and bomb the Capitol building. Unaware that public opinion had turned against them, Jones and her followers boarded a train to Charleston. Shortly into the peaceful march from the train station to the Capitol, Mother Jones was arrested for violating the martial law decree. She was placed under house arrest at Pratt. During the courts martial that followed, Jones and her co-defendants were allowed civilian defense attorneys, but they could not call defense witnesses and appeals would not be allowed. Press access to the trial was limited, but news was carried in nationally read publications like the New York Times and Collier's. Cora Baggerly Older was able to get into the courtroom. She wrote for the San Francisco Bulletin under her married name, Mrs. Fremont Older. They all answered to their names. These comrades in crime, the 16-year-old boy and the 80-year-old woman, so the prosecution maintained, had pledged fraternity in blood. The woman and the 48 men filled most of the benches in the courtroom and confronted their judges and jury. The faces of the men on the benches told a vastly different story from the faces of the men in uniforms on the right. The men on the benches were bent and hard-handed. Even the boys' faces were lined with toil. Their eyes were weak from working long, working long in the darkness of the earth. They could not bear the sunlight. The men seated at the tables were overfed and flabby. Their hands were soft and white. Their eyes looked through men. Their noses were noses that clearly showed they were of the dominant class. They had always been, and it was plain they intended to always remain the dominant class as far apart as the polls were the judges and the defendants. There was no doubt of the hostility they bore one another. This was the last day of the trial, but I found the defendants defying the judges on the first page of the book of recorded testimony. Mary Jones, otherwise known as Mother Jones, C. H. Boswell, editor of the Charleston Labor Argus, John W. Brown, treasurer-writer, organizer of the Socialist Party, G.F. Parsons, blacksmith, lawyer. Charles Bailey, mine workers' organizer. Paul J. Paulson, international board member of the United Mine Workers of America, had refused to recognize the military court by making a plea. Their attorney, Mr. Houston of Charleston, had based his advice upon Section 12, Article 3 of the Constitution of the State of West Virginia, which says, quote, The military shall be subordinate to the civil power and no citizen, unless engaged in the military service of the state, shall be tried by any military court for any offense that is cognizable by the civil courts of the state. End quote. Six defendants claim their rights as citizens to a trial in a civil court. Labor Secretary William Wilson received hundreds of letters and telegrams demanding Jones's release. One miner wrote. Quote, I have carried a gun three times in industrial wars in this country, and by the eternal, if any harm comes to the old mother, I am not too old, nor by the same token, too cowardly to carry it again. Ultimately, Jones was sentenced to 20 years for inciting a riot. In March, Dr. Henry Hatfield was sworn in as governor. To the chagrin of coal operators, who accused him of, toadying to the miners, the new governor visited the strike area, medical ba- bag in hand. Upon finding Jones in lockup, with low bar pneumonia and a 104 degree temperature, lying on a straw mattress, he ordered her removed to Charleston where she could receive medical attention. He also released 30 others who had been arrested under martial law. The following month, Hatfield proposed a four-part settlement compromise. First, a nine-hour workday at the previous wage. Second, semi-monthly pay. Third, the right to elect a union check weighman. And fourth, the right to shop outside the company stores. Strife and dissension must cease within 36 hours, the governor declared. Representatives of the union and of Paint Creek and Cabin Creek Mines all signed the deal, which would take effect on May 1st. The deal did not include arbitration, but or before the final signature on the, the final automatic deal, collection of units, by June 29, the exclusion of these two provisions in a shootout was so that unacceptable mine. that another strike was declared. The Paint Creek and Cabin Creek on Paint Creek lasted, lasted only two weeks, and the final contract added checkoff with the provision that it could not exceed $1 per day. According to Lawrence Lynch, the political science writer I quoted earlier, The change in pay was actually a net decrease. The agreement would be effective until April 1914. Two weeks later, Cabin Creek settled. Their deal included a pay increase and arbitration with no checkoff. They cost operators two million dollars in lost revenue and miners one point five million in lost wages. UMWA expenses reached six hundred thousand dollars and property destruction amounted to ten thousand. At least twenty lives were lost, many more by some estimates. And there were countless injuries. Naturally, the operators blamed the unions. After their september nineteen twelve meeting at the State House with Governor Glasscock, they had written to him that, quote, we stand for law and order, the UMWA does not. That organization has virtually invaded the state of West Virginia and is carrying on war therein, and it should be taught that such methods will not be tolerated. End quote. The governor's three-man commission agreed with the operators in blaming the union for the violence. It was their view that the Paint and Cabin Creek miners had been well-paid and, their homes, quote, above the average of the miners' homes in most places, end quote, their children, quote, strong and robust, well-fed and well-clothed, end quote. Of some of the houses, Harold West wrote, quote, I would want a more comfortable stable for my horses, end quote. The Governor's Commission did acknowledge the operators' practice of blacklisting miners, the high prices in the company stores, and the antagonizing effect of the mine guards. From the cloud of witnesses and mass of testimony figuring in the hearings, there emerges clearly and unmistakably the fact that these guards, recklessly and flagrantly violated in respect to the miners on Paint Creek and Cabin Creek, the rights guaranteed by natural justice and the Constitution to every citizen, howsoever lowly his condition and state. Many crimes and outrages laid to their charge were found upon careful sitting to have no foundation in fact. But the denial of the right of peaceable assembly and of freedom of speech, many and grievous assaults on unarmed miners, show that their main purpose was to overawe the miners and their adherents, and if necessary to beat and cudgel them into submission. We find that the system employed was vicious, strife prompting, and un-American. No man worthy of the name likes to be guarded by others armed with blackjacks, revolvers, and winchesters. Whilst he is endeavoring to earn his daily bread, we are unanimously of the opinion that the guard system as at present constituted should be abolished forthwith. In nineteen thirteen, Glasscock testified to the same to the U.S. Senate Committee on Education and Labor. The trouble commenced after three operators on Paint Creek who had theretofore employed union labor and had a contract with the United Mine Workers declined to enter into a new agreement with them. Senator William Bora from Idaho. Then it seemed to be that the mine guards were the disturbing element around which this trouble arose. Governor Glasscock. That was my impression, Senator. Yes, sir. Senator William Kenyon agreed with the other's conclusion about the high prices at the company stores and the abuses by the mine guards. Further... It is the opinion of some of the committee that the cause of all this trouble is deeper and more fundamental. The basic cause is the private ownership of great public necessities, such as coal. This, coupled with human greed, incident to such ownership, has brought about the deplorable and un-American conditions in the West Virginia coal fields under investigation. But as I'll talk about next time, this was not the end of the trouble in the West Virginia mines. I've relied on many sources for this series, some of which are listed in the show notes at AmericanEpistles.com. It will really help the show if you leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, and check the Pinterest page for images related to the series. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Thank you very much for listening.